You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. And remember, this is your last chance to see the final shows of my stand-up tour show, Compared to What?, at the Soho Theatre from the 30th of June to the 3rd. No, not the 3rd. That's the mistake I made on the email, and it's why Pete can't come and film it. The 30th of May to the 3rd of June at SohoTheatre.com. Use the discount code VERA, V-E-R-A, all in capitals, to get your ComCom listener discount on the tickets. And remember as well that Joe Brand is my guest at the final live Soho Theatre podcast of this year on the 8th of June. SohoTheatre.com for all of those things. And today, in a very special episode, I am going to be talking to Lee Ridley in a, in a form, a conversational form, in which I have never spoken to anyone on this show before. Uh, Lee has cerebral palsy and speaks with the aid of a communication aid, uh, the iPad screen that he uses for his gigs, at least. He performs as well. Um, the, the iPad screen that he uses, I, I've actually, he was kind enough to give me some screenshots of, so I will put them on the, uh, the Twitter, at ComComPod, or the Facebook uh, group. But uh, the conversation we had took about three hours to record. I think we ended up with about 40, 45 minutes worth as I would ask Lee questions and then I would pause and try to remember what we were talking about while he uh, typed things out. And then his communication aide would speak to us. And then uh, editor Daryl Smith has kindly deleted the pauses so that uh, this is a really uh, up for it, upbeat, vibrant conversation. There's a tiny little bit of repetition here and there as we both got to grips with the, the form. And, um, there were a few pre-recorded questions that I'd sent him in advance. Um, so if every, every so often, if we, if we duplicate slightly what we're saying, um, that's because we were, I was tripping with some of my questions uh, over things that I'd already asked Lee that he'd already answered for a later question, if you see what I mean. All will become clear. Um, this was incredibly fun to do. Thank you very much to Lee for having me around his flat. And uh, if you do get the chance to check out Lost Voice Guy, uh, you can see some of his stuff on YouTube, or of course do see him live wherever he is uh, gigging or festivaling next. Um, I can't recommend him enough. It is a, a really wondrous and very, very funny gig, and uh, he has he just delights in wrong-footing audiences uh, and exposing what we're all the assumptions that we're all making of him and so this without further ado is mr lee ridley lee thanks for having me uh i'm just gonna i'm just gonna paint the picture of your uh, your living circumstances for the listener you've got a very organized very ordered flat 
I can see a lot of Buffy and 24 uh, in your DVD collection, which I approve of. Um, this is this this already feels unfair because I wouldn't normally do this, <laughs> but um, uh, it's very ordered, very tidy. It's nice and warm. It's a pleasure. I remember listening to the very first episodes during my lunch break at work when I first started stand up. So it's nice to finally be on the pod. Oh, nice one. Thanks, man. <laughs> Excellent. So listen, let's let's just go through the obvious stuff for the benefit of the listener. This is going to be an episode unlike any I've done. Um, I was chatting to Nathan, who I know did a lot of work with you as a, you know, in a sort of helping capacity. And he was saying that he wasn't sure if you'd done any kind of podcast interviews before. I've seen a little bit of your stuff, not your material, I've seen that as well. But I've seen some interviews with you on, on like BBC Radio where, or BBC TV where they've interviewed you. And then I guess they've, they've done what, we do, what we're doing now where we'll cut out the pauses. Um, so have you been on any other podcasts before? Not that I can remember. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's begin with the first of the prepared questions and then we'll, we'll branch off from that. So how do you describe your style of comedy? And does that question ever come up, or do people not ask that because they assume that you are your own genre? I get asked that a lot, actually, and I never really know what to say. I can't really put it in a box, and it's difficult to put my finger on exactly what it is. I usually just end up telling people that I just take the piss out of myself and my disability a lot. I guess that makes me an observational comic to a certain extent. In the sense that I'm making observations about my everyday life. But, at the same time, my observations are not the type of things that many other people have experienced. And that's why I don't think I'm really an observational comedian. And, of course, because I use an iPad to tell my jokes, it just makes it even more confusing, because I'm not a traditional comic in that sense either. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that I haven't got a fucking clue how to describe my comedy. That's a very common answer. <laughs> a very common answer uh, in some elements of it. I suppose when we were at the stand, we had a drink a couple of months ago. We, we stayed after with Seymour and a couple of other guys were there. And we were having a pint after the gig. That we, I mean, that, I think that was the first time I'd seen you live in a club. Um, I'd seen you in like a like a sort of Edinburgh lineup context before. Um, but you had a, you had an absolutely belting gig, and we were hanging out afterwards. And a drunk guy who hadn't been at the show came along and sort of I think he remarked about your communication aid and he was saying is that a new phone and you had quickly I don't know if you had it on cut and paste but you quickly answered yes it's the new iPhone and and he didn't he was I don't think I don't think he was stupid I don't think he was hammered but he kind of just sort of went along with it in that kind of almost Darren Brown way where he's just like oh I've been thrown a bone here I guess it is the new iPhone so he hadn't seen the gig but we got chatting to him. It was a very funny conversation where we were all slightly mean. We were being slightly mean and kind of winding him up because he didn't really read the situation. But I remember at the time you said, this is where I get most of my material from. So I suppose the material of yours that, that, I, that I can think of most readily is 
when you unseat the audience by kind of speaking the truth about the assumptions they've made about you or other disabled people. And it gives you an unbelievable weapon to wield because you like people are so they find it really delicious and thrilling, really, to be caught out by someone disabled who is doing a kind of jacques thing of going, you thought this, didn't you? And then riffing on it in a different direction. There's not really a question in there. I'll try and turn that into a question. <laughs> but um, I guess I'm asking if... I, I would assume that most of your material comes from interactions going badly. Question mark. <laughs> yes, I would say so. I just think that situations like that are too good not to use. I do like to take the audience on a ride a bit. Because they're not expecting me at all. So I think they're nervous at first, then they relax a bit, and then they eventually enjoy it. Even if they don't, I still enjoy making them feel awkward, because I'm a bit of a dick like that. <laughs> I enjoy getting a reaction, whatever it is. And do you think as as a disabled person who has probably amongst amongst disabled people i would imagine you have a very loud voice if you see what i mean you really get to confront non-disabled people in a way that maybe regular disabled people don't <laughs> regular disabled people you know, i mean disabled non-stand-up comedian disabled people <laughs> you really get to to take people to task. Is that, do you think, because you have a particular... Obviously, you have a particular sense of humour, but is it also kind of revelling in the fact that you have that freedom that is denied to a lot of people in your position? Yes, I think I've just been lucky enough to be given a platform to say what I think. And I don't think many disabled people get to do that. Mainly because they don't get the support that they need in terms of becoming artists on stage or whatever. I have found that people call me an inspiration and stuff for getting my message out there. And I hate being called that but I can see where they are coming from. Obviously, I'm mainly just messing about on stage for a living, but I do realize that I have a voice, probably for the first time in my life, and that I can use it both to entertain and educate at the same time. I think that's one of the main benefits of me starting stand-up comedy, the fact that it's given me a platform. Whereas before I was maybe a bit self-conscious and shy about my disability, so some comics were either, it happens a lot in this show that people say they were the, the funniest or often the second funniest in their class. What was your experience of school and was there room for you to be funny? I think everyone would like to think that they were funny at school. Comedians are just the people who have never been able to let go of that idea once they grew up. But I do remember enjoying making people laugh at school. It gave me a good feeling. And I think that feeling has always been with me ever since. It's nice to be able to make people laugh, I think. It's a great skill to have. 
So I've always used it to my advantage. When I went to school, I went to a school for disabled people, but I also went to a mainstream school, which was next door, for some of my lessons. So I guess I got the best of both worlds. I had the support that I needed, but I was also given the chance to integrate with non-disabled people, which I think helped a lot. Because of my disability, I've never been that confident in myself though. My first thought is always what are people thinking about my disability. So, in a way, I think I learned to use my humor to counter it a bit at school. I think by being funny, I was trying to show the other children that I was just like them. It was my way of trying to be accepted. I also think I used humor as a defense mechanism. As long as I could laugh at myself, it meant that no one else could laugh at me. I think I'm still guilty of doing that now actually. I use humor to take away the stigma of my disability a bit, and to let people see that I've got a sense of humor just like everyone else. I'm very conscious of what people think about me when I get up on stage as well. I've always joked that being a comedian is probably the worst job that I could have, because I'm so self-conscious and hate being judged by other people. I think that's why I always open my set with a few quick jokes about my disability. That way I get to deal with the elephant in the room, and hopefully get the audience to relax a bit. Obviously it works better sometimes than others. But most of the time, it gets punters on my side a bit more. I think the reason I enjoy getting up on stage, even though I don't like being judged, is because I find the whole process quite therapeutic. Let's face it, if I didn't laugh at my situation, I'd probably be very depressed about it instead. Comedy has given me the opportunity to express myself, probably for the first time in my life. So in terms of self-expression, and in terms of the way you are seen, or the way you imagine you are seen by people, the way you interpret that you're seen, it occurred to me, one of the very first things I did when I came in here, I kind of, I was slightly patronising about your living, <laughs> about your, yeah, and I think because it's really, really neat, and I kind of went, oh, look at you in your neat house. And then I realised as we've been talking, I thought to myself, well, I guess mm. it has to be neat because you've got a lot of shit to be organised. You've got, presumably, you've got to make things easy for yourself and for anyone else that's here. So I've already made a series of assumptions about who you are as a person that are based on like either not noticing or not being aware of your disability. That's just because I'm a tidy freak. <laughs> okay, well, then it still counts, because then I've made the assumption that you're tidy because of your disability, rather than because you're into being tidy. Like, I see you as a, a, a nice guy, like a nice, polite guy. You've got very twinkly <laughs> eyes. Uh, it's very satisfying to see you smile. You've got a very natural sort of a smile. I feel like you're a nice dude. Is that, A, is that true, and B... Is that because you have less of an option to be a prick to people? 
because I think on stage you kind of you really relish like you said before you relish being a bit of a dick on stage and I wonder if that's because your reliance on other people or maybe what I'm presuming is your reliance on other people often confines you off stage to being nice I don't think I'm always a nice guy to be honest I have my faults like everyone else but I do think it's harder for me to be a dick in my day-to-day life. Firstly, because I have to think before I speak. And by typing everything down, I probably have the chance to vet what I say a bit more. And secondly, because I can't really be asked with rude people. So I'll just play the disability card a bit and pretend that I haven't noticed them or whatever. Overall, I think I'm a pretty decent guy though. It just gets frustrating at times, and that's when maybe I lose my temper a bit. So, have you found yourself, can you, can you m- modify the sound of the, the communication voice to be angry? Can you shout? No. This is what I sound like when I'm excited, sad annoyed and disappointed. So I haven't really got the ability to express emotion in my voice. I mainly do that through my body language instead. I have also purposely not stored any rude phrases on my iPad for when people piss me off, (laughs) because I know it would be too easy to use them. Okay, that's a fascinating answer. So you have stored some, you have some kind of key phrases. So, because I want to keep this about performance, I don't just want to interview you about what it's like to speak through an iPad, but with a with a view to, with specific reference to your performance, do you, talk to me about how you structure your act in terms of whether you're making decisions to do different jokes at different times, or what, do you have a palette of all of your jokes and you can stick them in where you like, or do you tend to stick to the same set? In a, in a club set, let's say. Each of my jokes is stored under a button on my screen, and then I just choose which joke to tell at which point, depending on normal factors of any comedy club night. I can also pause in the middle of a joke if I need to allow for laughter breaks or if I think the audience is having trouble keeping up. <laughs> You've already noticed that I'm very organised. So I do also have set phrases stored for nearly every eventuality. For example, if I get heckled or if my iPad suddenly decides to crash. Most of these phrases have been added from first-hand experience of needing them. So if your iPad crashes, do you have another device on you that you can, pre- you can play a pre-record joke about your iPad having crashed? I usually just wait for this one to reboot and then I press my joke about it crashing and asking where is Steve Jobs when you need him. The tension that you get when the audience realise something has gone wrong is amazing. (laughs) And I think the wait makes the joke funnier when it does actually come. Yes, yes, of course. Yeah, that's lovely. Because they can tell something's gone awry... And then they're like, oh, the, so I suppose the tension comes from, oh, God, how can this be OK now? <laughs>
So this is Lee. Tremendous fun talking to him. I think we both uh, had a very enjoyable experience of this. I, all of the errors and duplications and what have you are entirely my fault as I struggled to get to grips briefly uh, with something that obviously uh, Lee has had to get to grips with over many years. So um, we will get back to this interview in just a second. I think I will largely let it speak for itself. Um, one or two moments, I suppose I said things or made assumptions, as you may have heard in the first section, um, that uh, probably someone would delete uh, because it makes them sound foolish. But I've tried to leave them in because I think it's a, a fair representation of me getting to grips with... Uh, some of the assumptions that I make about uh, Lee and his uh, condition, and uh, and I think they're worth leaving in because maybe those are, those are some of the things that that he really enjoys picking apart and undermining and rug pulling from his audiences. So I, I think they're all valid. I've just tried to leave it as much as possible as it is, minus some very lengthy gaps. So thank you to Lee for coming on the show. And as I said, he was kind enough to give us a couple of screen grabs of the actual iPad screen that he uses when he's gigging live and dropping jokes in. Uh, uh, hither and thither so uh, you can find those at uh, at comcompod on twitter uh, i shall put them up and i'll put them in the facebook group as well now a couple of listener emails i've had two very very exciting emails uh, on two different topics one is uh, from dr andy andy says i've just made a donation and set up a monthly subscription too god damn it well that's doctors for you everyone else comedians comedian.com forward slash donate he said i'd love to have made it more i'm trying to spread the love around a bit um but, but, but now i can afford it i think i owe you having listened to each and every comcom pod you've put out the podcast been one of many that's been a mainstay one of many you bastard one of many that's been a mainstay since i started my phd in 2012 all right mate um helping me relax and think about other things in the evening uh, you've uh, quite apart from the great many excellent comedians you've introduced me to others you've helped me understand and appreciate brackets and one or two i'll admit i told to fuck off out loud whilst listening to them thank you for your candor dr andy it's that really made me laugh um it certainly had something a bit extra in helping me get through the whole process process unscathed now he goes on to say there are lots of resonances with what can be very isolating work in academia the podcast has been a constant reminder of how normal it is for people however talented and brilliant to doubt themselves, find themselves being endlessly unproductive, and to generally feel fraudulent doing what they love at times. I've been a doctor since the end of March. I don't think I want to hear about you feeling fraudulent as a doctor, Andy. Good Lord. He says, soon after you helped settle the rising anxiety, to which I hope I've, I've not just further contributed, after a massive job interview on 11th of May, I came to see you at the Lescar for the first time. That was a, the venue in Sheffield that I did the tour show at. Bringing my partner to. I would have said hello. We had to run off before nerds extra time at the end. I still wanted to say thanks. It's now in Incidentally, Dr. Andy and everyone, it is now called Nerds Extra Time <laughs> at the end of the show if you want to come and meet me and talk podcast stuff. That's now called Nerds Extra Time as of now. Thanks for a great night, he says. I thought you were brilliant. My girlfriend thought so too. Uh, anyway, I got offered the job the next day, so I'm a proper professional academic. That's enough rambling. Congratulations on getting married. I'm very pleased for you. And uh, would I please give a shout out to uh, some clubs to shout out to Sean Morley's Regather, Regather Comedy Club and Square Hole Comedy with Rich Milner at the Red Deer in Sheffield. They're both great little gigs and you've got a few listeners as regulars at each. Should you and you should see Sean sometime if you get the chance. I think I saw Sean Morley um, very briefly. I saw him do a tiny set at one of the gala shows at the Mac Arena at the Secret Welsh Comedy Festival. And excellent he was too. So I look forward to seeing more of him. Thank you so much, Dr. Andy. Very much appreciate that. Um, thank you for your donations. Those of you that have donated, there have been some uh, very nice people jumping on the, the subscription payments for a couple of quid a month. That's very kind of you. Um, and also, uh, I yes, I, Nerds Extra Time. Why, the other reason I read that out is because 
just uh, understanding and appreciating and the podcast being a reminder of how normal it is for people, however talented and brilliant, to doubt themselves and find themselves being endlessly unproductive. We all do it. Now, from that to a listener called Jeff. Now, this is about everyone's a comedian. Many of you will know um, that I have started this crazy, possibly foolish Edinburgh experiment. I'm going to crowdsource uh, an entire hour of comedy that I'm only going to see the hour before I walk on stage um, entirely from your submissions. You can only submit at comedianscomedian.com forward slash experiment if you have never done a comedy gig in your life. I was going to say set foot on stage, but it had to have been stand-up if you've done any stand-up at all even one gig you are exempt and as someone said on the facebook group i've never been so proud to be exempt good for you um th- but this is the i this is a really fun email from jeff he said i'd really love to submit some jokes and ideas in fact i was just going to but what i've got right now is something i was asked to put together a while back as i was going to enter a competition but then never did hang on this is sounding good it's a bit about recycling growing up in the 70s it's about two pages long it should read like a completed script Would this be too much as an initial submission? He says, I mean, I'm constantly coming up with stuff, writing it down and never doing anything with it, so I'd be made up if some of it was performed just to see if I could make folk laugh if I actually got the nerve to just get up on stage. This is for you! What a brilliant email to get. You're my target for this. Anyone in Jeff's position who has written a thing or would love to do a thing but fears that they never will, they will never know if they're funny, everyone's a comedian. This is for you. He says, if it's too much for one submission, I'll try and break it down into separate ideas. It's just that the callbacks won't work then. Wow, I love it. <laughs> Absolutely love it. This is for you. Um, but if it won't break your website, I'll send it over via the page. And I actually emailed Jeff back to say that what I thought he should do is submit the whole thing. And hopefully Steve Dunn, whilst uh, collating and uh, casting an eye at and assembling, collaging, getting the, the order of the material that you guys all send in. Um, uh, Steve will look at it and decide how much of it to give me. And I think you should just trust me, Jeff, that I will scan it on stage and try to work out the funny stuff. And that will be funny. And maybe we will not use all of the callbacks, but we might get the kernel of the idea. We might express that. So if that is you, if you're in a similar position, if you've written a thing or had some funny thoughts and thought, well, I'll never put those on stage. This is for you. I'm not going to run off and, um, you know, pretend this material is my own. I'm not trying to crowdsource an hour. Uh, to then put on a DVD and sell. That's not going to happen. But um, I, I, this, this is exactly who I want it to be for. This is exactly, uh, this is why I'm doing it. So if that's you, comedianscomedian.com forward slash experiment. It's an opportunity to put uh, uh, on the uh, website when you submit your stuff. You can tell me if you're going to be in Edinburgh. I will try to work out the one date where most of you who've submitted will be so I can perform the stuff to you. That seems like a good idea, right? And so, anyway, that's all of that. Thank you for your donations. I'll chat to you briefly afterwards in the postamble. Um, but remember, please, SohoTheatre.com for tickets for either the Joe Brand live podcast on the 8th of June or my own show this very week. And it's... it's Death throes? That doesn't seem right, does it? Triumphant. What, what's a thing at which you, you sort of finish triumphantly? Yeah, death throes. We'll go for that. Back to Lee. So we talked before uh, in the pub about you not having an accent because you're a Geordie, but you don't have a Geordie accent. So what are some of the ramifications in terms of performance of your voice being disconnected from your physicality. An accent defines a person, really. It's almost as unique as a fingerprint. 
So it's quite hard when the voice is separated from the rest of me. I guess I'm used to it because I've lived with it all of my life. But I can see how punters could have difficulty with it. I think the main problem in terms of doing stand-up is the fact that I always sound very monotone. I can't really express myself that much with my voice. I can't sound excited or sad or whatever. This means I have to convey it a lot more in my writing and my body language. In a way I think this has made me a better writer, because I have to make sure that people get what I mean through what I say, and not what I sound like. I've always loved writing. Ever since I was at school, I always wanted to be a journalist. And I had such a great English teacher who always encouraged me to follow my dreams. So I think that experience has helped a lot when it comes to writing my comedy. I'd like to think I was good with words. I guess another problem that it creates is that it takes a bit of my identity away when I'm on stage, because people can't tell when I'm from. In a way, this could be an advantage because it stops people making assumptions about my background and stuff. But in another way, it doesn't let me be as unique as I'd like to be. I mean I'm unique because I sound like a posh version of Robocop, but sometimes I'd like to have a truly unique voice as well. That's interesting. i got so much to ask there. So... You have presumably chosen this voice from a palette of available ones? I answer the question you have just asked in my next answer. Great. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Well put. Part of the reason that this is, I'm, I'm finding this, an unexpected way in which I'm finding this complicated is I keep forgetting what I've just asked. <laughs> I have to write down what I've asked you so that by the time we've, we've got to the answer, I remember what it is you're talking about because my memory shot to pieces. <laughs> so have you experimented with different voices for performing? I mean, I know you've got individual gags where you change it up and very good stuff, um, but the main voice that you use... And what have you discovered about which voices are funniest or have different qualities in a comedy club, like more or less authority or warmth? I've changed my voice for individual jokes, but I haven't really ever thought about changing it altogether. I think the reason why I settled on this voice is because it's the voice I've been using on my other communication aids for a while. So, in my head, it is my voice. I'm sort of used to it now. I could have other voices if I wanted to, though. I think there's about ten male voices to choose from. I know this voice isn't ideal, but I think it's the best from the choices I had. I'm not even sure if I would like a Geordie accent, to be honest. Obviously I'd sound more unique with a Geordie accent, and I'd be interested to try it out. I know that it's possible to get one for some devices. But at the same time, I think this voice has some great comedy value. Some of my material is probably much funnier in this voice, just because it's so unusual. 
So I'm not sure if I'd like to change it or not. I guess it's nice to have the option though. Not many people can decide which voice to use. There is a particular quality to this voice, which it has a sort of a slightly, like you say, posh Robocop or a slightly plummy C-3PO quality to it that I suppose points up the the darker humour. So it's a slightly plummy robot voice doing a really dark joke about Anne Frank, for example. I think a paper in Edinburgh once described me as Stephen Hawking reading of this comic in the 1950s. Reading Viz comic in the 1950s, got it. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice. So when it comes to your writing, what does an average writing day or hour or session look like? I'd like to say I'm a disciplined writer, <laughs> but I'm really not. <laughs> I struggle to get motivated because I get distracted too easily. I've been a full-time comedian for a few years now, but I'm still enjoying the idea of not having to work a proper job with regular hours. That's why I always book a work-in-progress show at the Leicester Comedy Festival. Because then I have a deadline, and it forces me to write. I love doing the Leicester Festival anyway, but I do find it useful when it comes to starting my Edinburgh show. Anyway, once I actually do get down to writing, I'll usually spend about two or three hours working on stuff. Then I'll take a little break and come back to it. To be honest, the first hour consists of me trying to work out what my notes mean. I have a habit of writing really vague notes whenever I have an idea, then leaving it for a month and forgetting why I wrote it down. Yeah, I think that's definitely, I can definitely empathise with that as a, a challenge. So when you, you get a note and it's something about, say, a social interaction or an idea, or actually referring to that gig that you saw most, that I saw most recently of you, um... You, um, you've got those song question cues, that bit. That's like, that strikes me as like a really big win them over club bit. Song cues where you're saying, these are some of the questions that I get asked. And you play little snippets of songs like, hey, what's wrong with you? And how long has this been going on? And stuff like that. So for a bit like that, I mean, that's, I, I would assume that when you had that idea, you went, oh, this is going to, you know what I mean? Like, we all have moments of going, oh, oh, this this idea I've just had will definitely work. So once you've got that bit and pulled out the, the funny concept of it, do you modify it from one performance to the next? How How kind of reflexive, if that's the right word, how reactive a writer are you? to how stuff is going down in the room from gig to gig? It depends on how the material works, really. If it's gone well, I'll just keep it as it is for a few nights to see how it goes. But if it doesn't go very well, I can easily edit it and then try the new bit again the next night. I seem to have a habit of burying the best punchline in the joke itself, instead of at the end. So I'm often realising on stage that that bit needs to be moved, 
And if I manage to remember after I've come off stage, I'll move the joke structure around a bit. Gotcha. So some of my own best work comes when I'm when I can lose myself in the moment on stage, when I can kind of enter a sort of creative flow state. Do you have an equivalent of that? Can you write or improvise on stage? If so, how does that come about? And if not, what's your equivalent of that flow? How do you make your best creative leaps? I mean, I could write on stage, but the audience would have to be very, very, very patient (laughs) while I typed it out. I am trying to improvise more, though, by talking to the audience and stuff. Ah. But even then, I have every possible answer stored into my iPad, so it's not really improvising. It is sometimes frustrating when you think of something on stage, and you know that you'll not be able to use it, though. It's the same when I'm talking to my mates and think of something funny to say. By the time I typed it out, the moment has passed. Yeah. So most of my creative leaps come either straight after a gig, when I write down what I thought of on stage, or when I'm writing at home and remembering how the material worked on stage the previous night. I keep the good bits and work on the rest. I cannot imagine how frustrating it must be for a comedian, even more so than a non-comedian, to not be able to, like, to you got timing, right? You understand timing. <laughs> to participate either on stage or off stage, to be part of a, a kind of, you know, like I remember, I remember Katie Wicks, who I interviewed on this show, she said... Um, I can't remember the context of it, but she was talking about how a friend of hers was like, oh, yeah, but don't you, when comedian, I don't like hanging out with comedians because it's all just funny people standing around in a circle trying to top each other. And I remember Wicks going, that's the best thing I can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, to a point within certain parameters, that's really exciting. I can't imagine how frustrating that must be. I suppose I would hope for your sake that that then drives your your ability to or your your discipline to get it down later in the same way that a lot of Ed Burns material he said on this show is based on him trying to win an argument that he lost in real life does that happen do you find that the frustration at not having been able to nail the timing that you wanted to powers your creativity somehow or powers the the discipline to sit down and get it written I would say so yes Because once it happens, it is all I can really think about. So I'll be somewhere talking with my mates, but in reality I'm already thinking about how that particular thing that I couldn't just say, would work in a joke. So I start the writing process in my mind straight away. It's probably very antisocial, but I can't talk anyway so no one notices. (laughs) (laughs) So what are the other professionally frustrating elements of your disability? Apart from all the comedy venues being in basements or up three flights of stairs, (laughs) you mean. Obviously Edinburgh is a fucking nightmare, but at least it keeps me fit. Other than that, I just wish I could express myself more really. I'd love to be able to rely on my emotion in my voice rather than my body language. 
I guess I'd also like to be able to truly interact with the audience, and maybe think of stuff on stage and try it out and see how it goes. I'm very jealous of people like Ross Noble, who can just go off in so many different directions on the spot. Can you conceive of any version of that that you could do? Any of those challenges you've described? Are there any kind of avant-garde artistic ideas? I'm sort of thinking like in terms of emotion, could you, could you do something with colour of light? Do you know what I mean? Or something like that? Or have you, have you had any thoughts along those lines as to how you could solve some of those problems? <laughs> It'd be perfectly reasonable for the answer to be no, that's ridiculous. <laughs> for my last few Edinburgh shows, I have started to use keynote presentations using a projector. And I'm really enjoying adding the dimension to my comedy. It was actually John Gordillo's idea. I think it's given me another way to express myself. For example, I use images and videos to illustrate my points, and also to make more visual jokes. So there could be something that I could do there. I've also thought about having another iPad set at a different volume for when I want to shout. Yeah. I once had an idea that I could heckle myself from offstage as well. That's nice. Yeah, okay. So you do... It's interesting, isn't it? Because for all that there are obvious confining elements of, of the need to use a communication aid to, to speak to an audience, it, I wonder if there are some ways in which confining elements can stimulate creativity. It's sort of the opposite problem to going, I could just do anything. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like if someone asks you to write about anything, it's impossible. So, yeah, that's interesting. A different iPad set to allow... Yeah, I was, yeah, volume's a nice idea. I'm to brainstorming now as opposed to, as opposed to interviewing you. Um, could you... Do you feel confined by the subject matter? Presumably there's a... There's a well, is there a, an element by which you, you are sort of socially forced to confront our ideas about your disability? Can, have you ever done a set where you haven't mentioned it? Could you do a set about films or bus travel or anything without your condition being a part of it? I guess I do feel that I need to address my disability because my act is so unusual. And I always worry what assumptions people will make. Being called lost voice guy probably doesn't help. The only reason I chose a stage name instead of using my actual name was because I thought it would help me stand out from the other ten acts that were on that particular bill at the open mic night. Even now, I don't remember every comedian that I watch as a punter. So I wanted to be the act that people could easily Google when they got home. I suppose that comes back to my training as a journalist and the way they sell the story to the reader. I think it's worked to an extent. Even though people still call me everything but Lost Voice Guy. I have been called No Voice Boy, Lost Voice Man, The Boy Without a Voice, and loads of other variations. But, despite what people put into Google when they search for me, 
I do think that having a stage name has helped. But I suppose you are right. Maybe it does define me by my disability a bit. And maybe it does make me a bit of a novelty act. That's probably why I haven't got an agent yet. I think that some people think that the novelty will wear off. I would hope that those people who have seen me perform don't define me by my disability. I'd like to think they just see another guy being a dick on stage and getting paid for it. I do get very conscious of always joking about disability, to be honest. No pun intended but I try to make my jokes as accessible as possible. <laughs> the fact is that I've got 36 years of material to work with, so that was bound to be my starting point. And this government makes it easy to write jokes about being disabled under the Tories. So there's a lot of disabled material out there. I'm really surprised to hear you don't have an agent, given your obvious skill, your numerous Edinburgh shows, your, what I would imagine is your, if not your marketability, then your own approach to marketing. You've got a really strong, uh, do you know what I mean? Like in terms of like your web visibility, all those sorts of things, like you're a, you're a really marketable package, right? That's what I've been saying. But who am I to second guess the mind of the comedy industry? So do you think there is an element to which agents are letting someone else worry about the potential difficulties of working with you? Maybe a bit. But I also appreciate that it's probably just all in my head because I'm so self-conscious. It was the same when I struggled to get my first job after university. I started to think it was because I was different and maybe a bit more work. At the end of the day, I'm just fucking insecure. I suppose in talking to you, I'm sort of recognising... A, a really understandable vulnerability that I don't ever see in your act. Because your act is so gleeful. You are a very <laughs> powerful person on stage. I sort of, I suppose I see you and imagine what I imagine of your, your offstage life. I think like, oh, well, Lee's got this sorted. He's found like probably the most exciting thing, the, the most kind of, uh, one of the most exciting bursts of freedom that someone with your disability can have is the ability to actually get on stage and say what you actually think to people. I guess I see the, the power of the position that that, that, that holds, the, the power that position contains. I think I hide it really well, but I think I always have. So, <laughs> normally in, uh, I should say usually, <laughs> Usually, this is where I'd be starting to try and make you cry. <laughs> you said before you wanted the official uh, ComCom experience. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> well, I don't know. It puts me in a strange position as an interviewer, doesn't it? Oh, well done. Goldsmith made the disabled guy cry. <laughs> um, oh, oh, well, thank you. It's, I'm glad to see that the mic will be picking up some of your laughter. Because uh, without... Uh, without the laughter <laughs> element of like someone being in the room seeing the fact that I think we're both enjoying this bit of it, then it does paint me in a very difficult light. 
So, well, let's talk about the... I mean, come on, I can't think of any comedians who don't have mental health problems. Have you got time to be depressed? (laughs) Not really. I've certainly never got any help for anything. I think I've just learned to manage it. I know a certain friend who listened to this and shouted at me for bottling it up. But I don't think I'm that bad. I think my disability has had a major effect on my mental health, but I'm coping with it in general. I think comedy has helped get it out of my system a bit. You think comedy has helped get it out of your system? Get the negativity, the, the negative, the kind of the, the negative mental health things. Comedy has helped get it out of your system. I, I'm, I imagine that has for a lot of comics, you know, it's an opportunity, it's a pressure valve. I suppose I'm interested in how... I felt bad about saying, have you got time to be depressed? That felt like a patronising question. Um, and I suppose your answer that no, not really, because you've got so much other shit to sort out just to get on with being alive, compared to the vast majority of comics who have a lot of languorous time during the day in which to reflect moodily out of the window and worry about their lives and be jealous of other people's careers. Is, is that what you mean, that you're kind of... Um, there's enough shit for you to be getting on with that you... Like, I'm less depressed now I've got a baby because I don't have time. In a way, yes. But also because I'm just too busy working and stuff to think about it. I try to keep myself occupied on long journeys as well because I'm awful at overthinking things. So I try to stop myself doing that on purpose. You're awful at overthinking things. That's, I mean, that sounds like a familiar rabbit hole. (laughs) When you say overthinking things, do you mean questioning your place in it all? Everything, really. I do think about the big picture, like you say, but I also worry about the silly little things such as relationships and family. I just let my mind run away at times. So what's your relationship status at the moment? Have you got a partner? I'm single at the moment, and I've been like that for a while. Again, it comes back to the big picture and the fact I'm disabled. Even though I realise that no one else probably cares about that. So you talked earlier on about your friend would accuse you of bottling things up. Can you think of a, a joke of yours or a bit which successfully expressed some of the stuff that you were previously bottling up I'll just check to remind myself of my material (laughs) actually my last Edinburgh show was all about the stupid questions that I get asked so I guess that's an example of me dealing with the shit that I have to put up with for example People have asked if I actually can talk after my gigs before, or if I've ever tried to talk before just to see what would happen. So my show was sort of my opportunity to put the record straight. Is it more satisfying as a comedian when you have dealt with something like that on stage, and as a result, the next time it happens in your life, you react to it differently because you think, well, I've said my piece on this, so it doesn't wind you up so much? I think that it helped me, yes. It's actually my favourite show so far, 
because I enjoy performing it so much. And yes it does take the sting out of the tail a little bit. But it also made me realize that some people are beyond help. <laughs> so, do you need to, in a set, or in a, in a set, I would say, in a comedy club, do you need to fight against them feeling sorry for you, ever? There's been times when that's happened. And there's been times when people have hated what I do because they know a disabled person and have got offended on their behalf. <laughs> One woman in Halifax even walked out as soon as I walked on stage. I try to just ignore them, really. I think I have enough of the audience on my side to not bother about those people. It's not really my problem if society has brought them up like that. How does the comedy circuit compare to the real world in terms of prejudice that you might face due to your disability? On the whole, I haven't faced too much prejudice in comedy. Some people know how to deal with disabled people more than others, of course. But that's a problem with society and not comedy. I think the most interesting thing I've seen while doing comedy is the way audiences treat you after a gig. They can watch me make them laugh for 20 minutes, but then still talk to me like an idiot at a bar afterwards. Oh, I've even had some people come up and ask if I really can't talk, and assuming I was some sort of fucked up character act. I think it bothers my friends I am with. More than it bothers me, though. I'm quite used to people being idiots. In fact, I got an Edinburgh show out of it, so I'm quite grateful for their stupidity. It is surprising how some people react, though. Again, it's more a problem with society as a whole, and isn't just to do with comedy. That must be so frustrating to have been on stage confidently proving to an audience mm. that you are not their assumptions and that you are a completely capable brain. You know, you are a completely capable human and you're able to banter and riposte and outwit them even. It must be so frustrating to then encounter them treating you no differently. And particularly one would imagine, as I suppose there is an element to your performance whereby you are kind of reappropriating their idea of who you are. You're grasping their idea of what a disabled person is, shredding it in front of their eyes, and then they come up having not fucking learned. That must drive you nuts. Yes, it does. When I first started doing stand-up, it was never my intention to educate people like that. I was just happy to be messing about. But I realized that it happens and if it helps some people change their opinions, then that's a good thing. Hopefully I've had more of those people at my gates than the other idiots. Are you put in the position of becoming either a willing or an unwilling ambassador for the disabled? I'm even hesitant about the term the disabled. I mean disabled people. <laughs> I think it's clear. I'm just going to have to progress as if we know there's love in my heart, guys. I'm doing my best. <laughs> I would say I was an unwilling ambassador for sure. 
especially when I'm always booked to talk about news items concerning disabled people. I really don't mind doing it, but I just want to be funny, really. I think there's better ambassadors than me. So do you have set funny answers for brand ambassador type questions? If you get asked to do those news things and your job as a self-marketing, self-employed comedian is to answer the question and sell tickets. <laughs> well, no, your job is to sell tickets by answering the question. Do you, is that then that's almost like another facet. That's another opportunity for your uh, promotional endeavours. This is how I know you've done some good research, because I've probably given the same answers to some questions more than once before. Yes, sometimes I will store my answers to save time. It depends who I'm speaking to, really. Obviously, I would never do it to you, because I have too much respect for the podcast. But, for local newspapers, for example... I can guarantee you that they will ask at least some of the same things. Questions such as what made you decide to do comedy, how did you lose your voice, and how do you perform using an iPad? So I keep some answers stored just to save me writing them out again. It's very smart and very lazy in equal measures. <laughs> Have you used any stock answers in this interview so far? None at all. Personal point of pride. <laughs> so let's just get back, before we wrap up then, let's get back to some of the, the elements of your writing. Do you spot yourself over-relying on certain tropes or certain joke formats? I don't mean in terms of content about disability or whatever you use a subject matter. I mean, you know, you're obviously someone who spends a lot of time in the writing process. So do you spot yourself and do you ever think to yourself, oh, I've done one a bit like that before? I certainly use the same phrases and stuff over and over. For example, when I'm setting up a bit of material, I might say I know what you're thinking or whatever. I also tend to use the rule of three in my jokes far too often. But it's only when I read or listen to it back that I notice. Okay. Something that happened in that answer there, the, the rhythm of or whatever bled into the rhythm of the next part of speech. Do you have any control over that when you're editing? I think I asked you, a, I think I might have asked you a prep question about um, timing and how you trim and edit. To give you a bit of context, each bit of material that I write is a button on the screen. And I can tap any button at any time to tell that particular joke. I can also tap the screen in the middle of a joke to pause my voice. Because of this, when I'm writing I often add random punctuation to my material. Firstly this helps break up the text a bit, and makes it a bit easier for people to understand. And secondly... The added punctuation gives me that extra second to pause the iPad, if I want to pause for laughter or whatever. So, when I'm writing, I'm always thinking about where the laughter might be and which parts need to be broken up to make them clearer. As any comedian will know, 
You can rarely tell when the laughter is going to come until you've tried it out on stage. So it's trial and error really. Quite often I will try material and the pauses will be in the wrong place, or laughter will have drowned out the next line. So I'll then have to go back and change where the punctuation is. I like good grammar usually, so it kills me to put it in the wrong place, but it needs to be done. It's the same with word placing, really. If I notice while on stage that a certain bit might work earlier in the joke, or I notice that the build-up to a punchline is too long, I'll make a mental note and then change it afterwards. I'll do this as much as I need to until I think that the joke works. I suppose that's how most comedians do it, but my way is just a bit more mechanical. Yes, that's fascinating that it's uh, random punctuation. So you need to kind of go, you write a sentence and then go, ah, the, the voice thing, you're almost fighting with the, the voice uh, aid because it has its own rhythm. And if you say a sentence, you type a sentence and then you play it back, then you need to put like a semicolon that shouldn't be there in order that it gives you an eighth of a beat or a sixth of a beat or something like that. Yes. Sometimes I have to spell words wrong as well. You have to spell them wrong. Can you give us an example? It can't say Kanye West. <laughs> so that's really interesting. I think I assumed you had more total control over the communication aid. It feels like you're sort of hacking the existing software. You're kind of... Um, uh, as you go, you're having to throw in sort of kind of arguably ham-fisted uh, commands to make it do what you want. So it's less of a, it's less like you're playing a musical instrument and more like you're, oh, this metaphor will be so good if I can finish it. Um, it's less like you're playing a musical instrument and more like you're, um, it's like you're playing Scrabble with a Welsh set. <laughs> so it's got too many L's and so you're having to build existing words yeah like 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 putting something together when you've got a limited amount of letters so you're having to turn an M on its side to be an E and stuff like that yeah well okay Goltz was very proud of himself for the better for I don't know how much insight there was in that but I, I think it's um, if you wouldn't mind I, I, I'd love to take a screen grab of a bit of script is that possible because I think that would be a really interesting thing to see the um to see the writing. And that brings me back to that idea you were saying that Gordillo was talking about other ways in which you can communicate. I wonder what it would mean to an audience for them to see your screen, to see what you were typing live. I mean, it would probably initially be quite confusing, but I wonder if there's as a kind of a, an additional means of you communicating through any means necessary to see you building it on your end. I've got a friend called Jeff Acton who does a show called Stick Stones, Broken Bones. It's been at Edinburgh a few times, uh, Swamp Juice as well. And he does um, a kind of, uh, he does junk shadow puppetry where you see the clown building the junk and he'll grab a shoe off a member of the audience and gaffer tape it to a balloon in front of you and then hold it up and then you'll see behind him the... Uh, the shadow that it's made. So you get to see the artifice and the art. I'm just wondering whether there's a, it's a conversation for another time, <laughs> but um, yeah. So you're hacking it as you go. So what, 
elements of comedy within your grasp would you most like to be better at? So things that you are physically capable of, but you feel elude you artistically. I often think that I don't get to the joke quick enough. That's probably because I've always liked creative writing and like to tell a story. And sometimes that works in a joke, but other times I need to be a bit tighter. Especially if I'm dealing with a stack party on a Saturday night. I've seen lots of photos or video of you doing your set with a Born in the NHS t-shirt or I'm only in it for the parking. And those are, you know, those are great, really funny. Um, I wonder if you are, we touched on this before, I wonder if you are a little bit guilty of defining yourself by the disability. Whereas really, given that you are a writer who has a voice, who has the opportunity to communicate with an audience, I wonder if this... Tell me if there's a terrible thing to say. I wonder if you could be thinking bigger than you're currently thinking. At the moment, you're doing comedy clubs, dealing with stag do's, and presumably finding some enjoyment, some satisfaction from overcoming those relatively small problems. Like a thing happens, I'm prepped, I've got a thing. Could you... You could you could be more of like a maestro figure. You could, you're a funny writer. You could push yourself to create like a, a big theatrical experience, budget allowing, I know. I mean, we're all just on the road gigging. But I wonder, I suppose what I'm asking, a better way to ask this question would be, do you have kind of pretensions of, I don't mean that negatively, do you have plans for something bigger than being a jobbing road act with a funny angle that you're able to, to express? given that you could be almost like a kind of organist. Do you know what I mean? You could be like, a, I'm sort of imagining like a big Philip Glass type multi-visual sort of show. You've got a voice. You're, you're found voice guy. Do you know what I mean? You, you've got a voice. You could, be, you could be light years ahead of the confines of a gigging comic dealing with stag do's. Discuss. That's my question. I would agree that I do define myself to a certain extent. The idea behind the t-shirts was so that I could let people know what to expect before even saying a word. Once again, it comes down to not being comfortable being the disabled guy on stage. But if I'm honest, I don't have any plans to go bigger and better with my shows. I didn't even expect to get this far in my career, so I'm just enjoying myself and seeing where it goes. In a way, I think I enjoy playing the comedy circuit better than doing solo shows, because it's a lot more social. And maybe I haven't always been as social as I like, so I enjoy seeing other comedians from time to time, and meeting people after a gig. That is uh, a very good way of reining in my <laughs> excitement about the sort of the concepts of great big multimedia shows by reminding me that it's that you're doing it for you, you know, and that's a good point. As someone who is doing a small bit of touring at the moment, my second little tour, it is lonely. You know, it is. Uh, that, and that has to be taken into account. That is not something I've ever heard another comic say 
or but I think it's a it's something that a lot of comics feel, which is that touring it's sort of better, hopefully, if not better financially in the moment, it contains the promise of being better financially, all those kind of things. It's better for the ego, maybe they've come to see you, but it is less social. And if one of the things that you are getting out of the comedy circuit is seeing people, then Jesus, yeah, man, that's important. <laughs> so I've got two last questions, quickies. Of what one-liner are you most proud and, and can we hear it if you don't mind using it on the show? When the doctor told me I'd never be able to talk again, I was speechless. Very nice. <laughs> was that an early... You, yeah, an early one. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, finally then, what would you have on your comedy gravestone? Well, I'm pleased to see that you didn't prepare anything for this. <laughs> I thought as a listener you might do. But... Uh, you could have all the time you need. I meant, but I forgot. <laughs> Sexier than Stephen Hawking. Nice. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thanks, Lee. So that was Lee Ridley. What a joy to talk to Lee. I really enjoyed that whole experience. He's such a nice bloke and such a funny guy. And uh, it, it was just really good fun to have this. He's got such a twinkle in his eye. We, we talked, I think we talked a little bit um, uh, about this experience of being upstairs at the stand uh, in Newcastle and uh, experiencing someone coming along and... Uh, uh, not understanding Lee's condition and not understanding what his communication aid was and all of the things that came out of that. And he is just, Lee is such a twinkler. So uh, <laughs> if you would like to go and see him twinkle live, I highly recommend you do that. And um, so thanks to Lee. Thanks to Daryl Smith. Hashtag thanks Daryl um, for your hard work in putting that episode together. Um, and thank you to all of you who are listening, who are sharing the show with each other, who are uh, getting excited about the new run of t-shirts. Now I'm, um, I am taking delivery of the taster of a brilliant t-shirt put together by fabulous American artist Polly Becker, especially for the show, and we will shortly be doing a pre-sale of those, so uh, that you'll get them at discount price if you order in advance. I'll tell you all about that on the show when that happens, but it will be for a limited time, so make sure you're subscribed to the show and that you are uh, picking them up as soon as they come out, because when I do the pre-sales in the next couple of weeks, um, then it will just be for a week. It'll be like, quick, order, 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 get your discount t-shirts. Um, if you care to join the Comedians Comedian Facebook group, which is set to private and Myself or Tom DL will let you in uh, if we so choose, unless you're selling Ray-Bans or shoes. That's the, that's the criteria. Um, and if you are joining that, don't use it to slag people off. Lots of comics that have been on the show are in that group, so don't just get in there and start wildly slinging mud. It's not the place for it. But um, uh, I will tell you about the pre-sales of the T-shirt there and online as well, if you'd care to follow at ComComPod or indeed at Stu Goldsmith, which is my own account on which I post almost nothing. So that is, that's all of that. And yes, so if you, if you fancy sharing the show if you'd like to leave me a nice review on itunes particularly if you're outside the uk it really helps to build the visibility of the show if you're in finland for example and you you your finland in finnish itunes uh, will have its own 
ratings quadrant. I don't know the terminology, but basically, if you're outside the UK, it's really useful uh, for you to rate the show as well as share it with your friends. Thank you for listening. That's all of that. I will post Amble at you in just a moment. But uh, thanks once again for listening. And we'll be back next week with... I'm recording three episodes in the next week. I don't know who, which one of them I'm going to put out because they were three such exciting people, but it will probably be the guy I talk about most often on the show. A little clue there. Speak to you soon. Mm-hmm.